1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Clara Reynolds. Clara is the president and CEO of the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. She leads a staff of over 220 employees and over 100 volunteers who respond to more than 160,000 requests for help every year. Crisis services are provided 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Clara Reynolds, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Good afternoon, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much.
1: No, thanks for your time. We know you're busy and really appreciate it. So let's start by providing our audience with an overview of the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. What services do you offer? You know, how are you funded and how do you help people in crisis?
2: Crisis Center of Tampa Bay's mission is to ensure that no one in our community has to face crisis alone. So we offer a variety of services to help those that are struggling. And we define crisis as a life's problem who needs a solution. So those 160,000 people are calling in with needs for assistance. We're providing them with um, trauma counseling. We are a certified rape crisis center. We also run a 911 ambulance service. So all of those together incorporates some of the services that we provide. And we are funded through a really quilt of different funding sources, certainly federal, state, and local um, government funding. We also utilize the generosity of our community through philanthropy and donations, and then we also run a social enterprise. So our ambulance service, think about it like the Girl Scout cookies. It helps to provide the resources that we need to fund those things that many funders don't like to pay for.
1: The pandemic certainly hasn't made things easier for you and your staff. You said one result of the COVID-19 outbreak has been a behavioral health tsunami. And my listeners know that tsunami has been a word I've been using over the last several months uh, in the mm-hmm. mental health space. Uh, you know, so how has the pandemic affected people's emotions and well-being? And I'd ask you to break that into two groups if you could. Uh, you know, first, maybe people who have a history of behavioral health, health issues. And then those who have not, because I get the sense that you know, we've all been affected uh, in one way or another, but the impact certainly must be different among different people.
2: Absolutely. And for those who are already struggling with history of behavioral health issues, you know, this pandemic takes things to the next level. And it's not just COVID. It's the other stressful events that we have experienced, uh, political uh, issues, societal issues in the state that I'm from, Florida, uh, environmental issues with the number of hurricanes, but we think about wildfires, we think about all of the uh, weather impacts, all of this has come together. And when we also think about the disruption, you know, there's a reason why um, solitary confinement is considered punishment. Isolating individuals has really impacted those that were already struggling with issues. You know, and finally, it has been, there's been a ripple effect uh, across uh, the, the community with friends and family members. For those who have never experienced those issues before, this is a new journey for them. Um, and so many times they don't know how to get help or support. And even if they do, they may be uh, fearful. They may worry about stigma. They may worry about all of the other things that are preventing them from getting help and support. And so all of both in, in both categories, both categories are struggling equally uh, just from different vantage points.
1: You know, we thought 2020 was the year that, you know, kept on giving and 2021 is off to uh, uh, the same start picking up where 2020 was. Uh, Absolutely. And so you Unfortunately. Talk about, yeah. And you talk about the political emotions and stigma. Those are things we're going to get to later in the show. Um, you know, I mentioned the two groups of people with a history of issues and those without. But have the effects been different among different age groups and ethnicities?
2: You know, certainly no one is immune from the impact, but I, one of the things that we're seeing is that for those over the age of 65, where COVID really has had the most significant impact, those would uh, those age groups contribute to much more high anxiety. But I also wanna talk about children. I mean, we are certainly seeing uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety in children as young as two and three. I have a teenager in my house and I know for us how impacted uh, the virus has been for him, uh, changing in school environment extracurriculars sports friends all of the things that normal teenagers are have been able to do they can't do right now um so you know i think we can all agree that this pandemic has impacted across the board but certainly in the upper age groups the the younger age groups and then even for those of us like myself who have families and work and all and trying to juggle all of those things um that has been impactful and you know it certainly goes without saying because we have seen this every where the disproportionate um, nature of this virus in our uh, underserved um, and underrepresented communities.
1: You know, we talk about teenagers and, and homeschooling. You know, the show started a little bit late today because, you know, the Wi-Fi in my war room in the basement was a bit lag, given the fact that, you know, there are five of us, you know, all remote right now. Uh, you know, and, you know, our three kids, you know, my oldest is a senior in high school. Uh, we've got a freshman in high school and my son's in third grade. And so, seeing the differences on them in terms of how they're affecting it. You know, my oldest is a senior, as I mentioned, and there's no senior prom. You know, is right. there going to be a graduation? Uh, my middle one, she's a freshman in high school. And so she doesn't really know what high school is like right now. Uh, you know, my little guy says, yeah, I miss seeing my friends. And so, uh, like you said, in every age group, they, they react a little bit differently. And it's case by case. And we're learning as we go. You know, my right. wife and I are not trained clinicians. And so we kind of take it day by day and, and hope for the best. Right. Help from folks like you. Thank you. So what effects has the COVID crisis had on people who contacted the crisis center in the past you know, 10 to 12 months? And how long lasting do you think they will be?
2: When when folks first started calling us here at the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay, that was the week of February 29th. Florida was a little slow in participating in this process, maybe good or bad. Um, And so the first set of calls were really around, what is this virus? I'm worried about my health and safety. And then as the month of March really started to um, uh, go by, what we started seeing were folks calling us in significant financial distress. They were losing their jobs. They were worried about how they were going to make their rent payments how they were going to put food on the table, and then it was the juggling act of I'm worried about my elderly parents because I can't see them. I'm worried about my kid because now I'm having to teach and then I my hours have been cut at work. And, and so all of that, calls that would usually take us about seven minutes to get to some sort of resolution was now taking 15 to 20 minutes because it took time for us to be able to really help individuals process. Uh, so that was a, a, a significant issue. And then the volume for us went up significantly. Again, Chris, back to your point before, individuals who have never needed help we were finding themselves in need, uh, particularly in those industries like the arts, entertainment, uh, restaurant workers, those folks may have never, you know, folks in the gig economy, uh, you know, they had no idea uh, how to get help and support. And so we were spending quite a bit of time providing them with assistance.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about the drain on on your resources because we always think that there's a 1-800 number to call or, you know, 911. And it's just a a generic steady flow day by day. Uh, I guess I personally didn't think about just the spike in the, in the drain or lack of resources, given everybody or, or majority of folks now uh, looking for help, looking for somebody to talk to, looking for guidance and suggestions. And so, um, you know, I'm seeing more and more articles about the stress and strains on those frontline workers, on those in the medical profession and in the mental health profession, and they need help. You know, I've mentioned Absolutely. mentioned before here. You know, last a few months ago. So I'm just outside New York city, the chief emergency room doctor in New York city, she committed suicide. Right. You know, and these are the frontline workers that we expect they can handle us because that's what they do. And I guess it just shows that, you know, everyone's got their breaking point and, you know we need to come together, you know, as a community, as a nation, as a world uh, to help each other out.
2: I couldn't agree with you more Chris and I, and you know again just a little bit more on this point. you know as we've said, the pandemic impacts every single one of us. And so for us, our staff are trying to provide help at the same time they're experiencing many of the same issues that the, the callers who are calling in are experiencing as well. so and add to that, many of our most of our staff had to go remote. Imagine taking calls of this type of nature in your bedroom. You know, places that were normal sanctuaries for you are now becoming your place of work and there is no escape. And so all of those things created for us opportunities, I'm going to use that word, as employers, as managers, as supervisors to figure out how are we going to provide that help and support to our staff? And back to what you said about our first line workers, you know, death by suicide certainly is a huge risk right now. And so how are we as those ones that are providing that help and support as those supervisors and things like that, how can we really connect with our staff to make sure we're reminding them they've got to take care of themselves in order to be able to take care of others?
1: you know another great point and we're maybe a little bit off topic here but you know where do folks in the mental health profession in the front lines you know first responders you know your staff you just said they need help too they're going through the same things that I am my wife is my neighbors are do they help each other do they call each other are they locking it in because they feel that they're supposed to be the ones helping those calling them
2: Yeah, I think it's all of the above. And so as supervisors, we're reminding staff, first of all, what is your self-care plan? Before you start your day, what is your self-care plan? How are you going to take care of you? If you need help and support, do you know where to get it? Do you have a colleague at the office? Do you have somebody at home? Do you know about your employee assistance program, your EAP program? Um, Are you familiar with that? And let's practice and make sure that you've got all of these things. We need to do that, um, that level of intervention before the crisis happens. And so for us here at the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay, there's been a renewed emphasis on, in training, in regular supervision, in regular coaching, starting those discussions with how are you doing? How are you managing your stress? Are you utilizing your plan let's review your plan make sure it still works for you starting conversations they are not as an afterthought at the end and we've really been encouraging everybody in our community our business leaders our government leaders they need to make sure that they're doing that with their staff because again like we said everybody is stressed out in this um, in this pandemic and certainly those those natural helpers are the least likely to ask for help so helping them to remember it is okay not to be okay.
1: Well, you know that's a perfect segue. You know that's a phrase you like to use all the time.
2: It's okay to
1: not be okay. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that, please?
2: Yeah, and I stole this from um, our sheriff here in uh, Hillsborough County. He utilized that a lot with his deputies, and I think that the idea was that you know it is okay if you're struggling. It is okay if to to feel what you're feeling. What is not okay is not talking about it. And I think that is the bigger piece of this. You know, what you're experiencing is absolutely real and to swallow that down or to pretend it doesn't exist helps nobody. So making sure that when you are struggling, whatever that is, if it's, you know, if it's thoughts, if it's, you can't sleep, you can't eat you're whatever it is, making sure that you have a plan to start talking about it. And that can be with coworkers, it can be with family, friends, or it can be with a professional, it can be through uh, something like us, 211. 211 is a number that's available across the country, so that is always available as an anonymous uh, phone number that you can find help and support when you need it on your time. And uh, I think that that is what we've really been trying to do, is to reduce the stigma, reduce the stereotypes around individuals who are struggling with behavioral health issues, as if it's their fault, as if if they were just had more willpower, if they could, just you know suck it up buttercup if they could just do those things somehow they would get better not recognizing that it that you can't say the same thing about high blood pressure you know you get high blood pressure there are medications there's things you can do to uh you know to address that the same thing on the behavioral health side and if there is a bright spot in this pandemic i think it's the realization that we all are have behavioral health issues we need to be aware of our behavioral wellness and that it's okay to reach out for help before you get to a crisis.
1: So last night I was preparing for the show and I had the news on in the background, which I haven't liked to do recently, um, but a commercial came on and it was with the Indianapolis Colts, the NFL football team, their owner, Jim Irsay, and Colts linebacker, Darius Leonard. And their campaign is kicking the stigma. And in it, Darius Leonard, their star linebacker says, it's okay to not be okay. Literally said that. I thought that was perfect timing and ironic given going over the notes here. And you just mentioned, I think the one positive thing COVID-19 has brought to society is that it's put a huge spotlight on mental health and getting people to talk about it more. And, you know, if there is one bright spot we can take away from this is that it's okay to not be okay. You know, so that being a
2: thousand percent,
1: you know, and that being said, what should people do if they feel not okay? You know, what advice do you have for people who might be depressed or anxious because of everything they have experienced during this, you know, global pandemic?
2: I can almost promise you if anybody in your listening audience is experiencing that the hardest thing to do is to say to yourself I'm struggling and I need some help. Number 1. Number 2, once you say that, it's actually reaching out and getting the help. When you do those two things, you will be un- you will be surprised at how much better you feel, at how much just talking to somebody uh uh, will alleviate some of that burden and really that sense of being overwhelmed and then you've got somebody on the other end of that phone that isn't just validating your feelings that is talking to you but then can also help you create a plan a lot of what we experience on the behavioral health side is this lack of control fear of the unknown um worries and concerns sometimes when you just voice them out you give them a voice sometimes that's enough to help you be able to then take a breath Once you can take a breath, then you can make a plan of action. How am I going to address this fear? How am I going to address this issue? Okay, I can do some concrete steps that's going to help me to be able to take back the control I feel like I've lost in this situation or or through this process. And that's why it's so very important. So, again, recognize it and then just reach out and ask for help. Those are the two biggest things you can do, and they're the hardest things to do as well. So
1: how has the pandemic affected people who participate, excuse me, participate in support groups, you know, those who have been needing help for a while, you know, specifically, like Alcoholics Anonymous, or Gamblers Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous, you know, they rely on a foundation of in-person meetings, and they haven't been able to have that over the last 9, 10, 11 months, how are they coping through all this?
2: I I believe that our, um, our, our peer support networks have been very creative in how they have addressed some of these issues. You know, we've talked a lot about technology in the past. Technology certainly has been a gift for those communities and so there are uh, special communities that have been created through Zoom and Teams and all of the various uh, different pieces. They also have done some very innovative outdoor type of related uh, things, socially distanced, uh, but I also believe that many folks are, that have not been able to take advantage of that may still, are maybe be feeling disconnected and that's why it's important to remember uh, services like 211 are available um, and then trying to um, uh, also, I think what's important is what we were talking about before is, you know, recognizing that, this is a new way, and it's going to feel icky and uncomfortable embracing that, being okay with that uncomfortableness, but then still reaching out and trying that virtual. Give yourself permission to try something. If you don't like it, that's okay. There may be some other opportunities to engage, um, but trying these new virtual ways, um, as well as utilizing things like two one one to help you get through these difficult times when you can't meet face-to-face.
1: So here's the million-dollar question for you. I hope you have the answer but I'm not sure. Is the worst of this behavioral health tsunami over? You know, what can or should we expect in 2021?
2: It is not over. I, yeah, I just I would love to pretend that I could, you know, put on my Pollyanna little hat and believe, wish it away. That I had the magic wand. It is not over. It is the tip of the iceberg. Um, as other issues arise, and we can certainly talk about the financial issues, the political issues, all of these things are going to continue to contribute to the behavioral health issues that we're experiencing. And I also want to say too that thank goodness we've got vaccines and the vaccine rollout, no matter where you are, it's gonna be fraught with hiccups, we all know that. But a shot is not going to impact our behavioral health as quickly. Um, There's still gonna be a lot of things that's gonna take us time to get us back to whatever the world looks like. And normal may never look the same again, and I think that that is something that is really also amping up the way people are um, uh, thinking about their uh, their world and contributing to their anxiety and depression. So I think it's going to be important again to recognize that if you are struggling, reaching out for help is the most important thing that you can do, and also you know kind of be realistic in what you're expecting. I think many of us thought that. December thirty first to January first, woohoo! Everything was going to change, and we've seen in the first week of the year that is absolutely not the case. So, again, just taking a breath, remember what we can only control, what we have control over, and um, and continuing to to move forward together.
1: You talk about reengaging with society. You know, some people at some point, people have been working from home for almost a year now, myself included, are going to have to reengage with society, going to have to get back out there. What sort of anxiety can we expect when that happens? And maybe more importantly, how do we begin to prepare for that?
2: I think leadership at all organizations are going to have to be very mindful that uh, it's going to be different for every person. Some folks are going to be ready to get back to work ASAP. I am in office. I've been in office the whole time because there's no way I could work from home. I have other staff that would always like to work from home. So, so I think it's going to be important about leadership to be able to do that. And I also think that there's also going to be, have to be some recognition that if your kid is still at home and you're at work, that that could also create some, you know, some anxiety. So, keeping those things in mind. And I also think that it's safe to assume that because we've been so isolated, the, the, a desire to get back together may be strong or it may be weak. We, we may not be ready to be in a room full of people again. We may not be ready for a hug or a handshake again, or we may be so ready that we go over the top with it. So I think all of those things are things that as businesses we're going to have to think about is how do we successfully bring people back so that they can get the social and emotional nourishment that they need from their professions, while at the same time being mindful that it may take folks a little bit longer, particularly if they had some very negative personal impacts from COVID-19, either themselves or loved ones. It may take them a little bit longer uh, to feel comfortable and engaged. But being patient um, and being flexible has got to be the keys in 2021.
1: One aspect of that re-engagement is air travel. Before COVID-19, I professionally was on a plane more times than I could count, you know, including flying cross-country regularly, flying to Asia, flying to Europe. How do we convince people it's safe to get on an airplane again?
2: It's important to think about what are the pieces that stretch that stress you out about flying right now. Um, And then I think making some plans around what can you control? How much of it is within your control to deal with those things that are worrying you? Are you worrying about, you know, sitting uh, in a seat that may be contaminated? Okay, can I have some can I make sure I always have wipes, ways to sanitize? I think it's also going to be an organic process. As more and more people feel comfortable um, and see uh, other people participating in flying and hear, oh, I had a great experience. Oh, it was no problem. That's going to help um, the movement and bringing people back. I also think it's important, again, you know, to think about what is outside of your control versus what's inside of your control and getting a grip to that and always create a plan. Making sure you have a plan of going from Outside the airport to in the airport, what are you going to do? From in the airport to on the plane, what are you going to do? What are you going to do at disembarking? So you've got a, a plan within your mind, at least around the things you can control, how you're going to be able to keep yourself safe.
1: The Crisis Center staff works with a wide range of people in crisis and many different types of crises. Military veterans and their families are very near and dear to my heart, as my listeners know. You've done some very unique work with veterans in Florida through the Florida Veterans Support Line. Would you share the story of that program and how support line for the entire state came under your purview?
2: Certainly. And thank you for asking. In 2014, uh, the state of Florida, first of all, is a very large veteran um, state. I think we're the third largest veteran population in the country. And so we were having veterans calling us saying, you know what, I, I, you know, I I need a little bit of help. I need a little bit of support. And and folks like me would say, absolutely. What can I do? And the first the next thing out of the mouth was, are you a veteran? And when I would say, no, sir, no, ma'am, I am not. They would thank me and hang up. We knew we were missing a lot of veterans that needed help and support. We also knew the statistic, 22 veterans were dying by suicide every single day. So we started a pilot project where we took actual veterans here in the here in the local community that had lived experience, that had struggled with their own transition, maybe had substance use issues, maybe experienced anxiety or depression. We created a pilot that was funded by our local legislature and six years later, it is now supported by the Veterans Administration and it is a statewide program where we have veterans with lived experience placed all throughout the state. Um, there's a centralized phone number where veterans and their families can call in for help and support, again, answered by veterans. Immediate assistance is offered, and if additional help and support is needed, that is pushed out to the veteran in their local community who can continue to work with that veteran to um, ensure that whatever their need is, it can be met.
1: And what can people listening to the show today do to help a veteran who might be struggling with their behavioral health or just with day-to-day needs?
2: you know, first of all, help them to have that conversation with somebody, refer them uh, to either the Veterans Crisis Line or to 211. And if you do know a veteran is struggling and they might need food or clothes, don't wait, just provide it to them. Uh, veterans are used to being the helpers. They don't like asking for help unless they absolutely have to. And so helping them um, to recognize that they are struggling and offering them as much support as possible is really the key to that outreach.
1: We've been talking to Clara Reynolds, and we'll be right back after a short break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's
0: spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea
2: Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America
0: Empowerment Channel. Thing to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to one 346 9141 that's one 346 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: all right we are back with clara reynolds President and CEO of the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. So, Claire, we were talking about some pretty heavy stuff before this. Before we get back to those serious topics, I have to bring up the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Go Bucs! <laughs> For members of our audience who aren't football fans, the Buccaneers played their first playoff game since 2007 and won their first playoff game since 2002. <laughs> For those of you who can't see, Claire's doing a little uh, party dance. <laughs> My ACE research staff showed me a 2015 news article that said you and your husband hadn't missed a Bucks game in the first 15 years of your marriage. Very impressive. <laughs> in part and primarily because you asked for season tickets as an engagement gift instead of a ring. Mm-hmm. I got to say, that's a lucky man. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> we know the pandemic has kept a lot of people away from a lot of events, games, concerts, all that other good stuff. But tell us about your love for the Bucks. You know how the season went for you, and how you feel about your Super Bowl chances.
2: So uh, I'm from Tampa, born and raised, and so I have been a diehard Buccaneer fan since I was six years old, from 1976. So that tells you I'm 50. So I've I've loved the Bucks a long time. Um, You and you know, kind of like the Cubbies, you know, it doesn't matter how bad they are, you just love them anyway. So for us, this year it has been really strange, as you as you mentioned, Chris and I laugh. It truly was the case. I got uh, I was engaged in 2000, and the Bucks were just really starting to take off, and I was dying for season tickets and. So that's what my husband gave me. So we've been in the same seats uh, for the past 20 years. We just celebrate our 20th anniversary in July. And so for us this year uh, in the state of Florida, we've had a hybrid situation in regards to football. So I've actually, of the eight regular season games, I've been able to go to four of them, uh, including the one um, Sunday, uh, two weeks ago, Sunday against the Atlanta Falcons. So it has been, it has renewed my appreciation of being able to just be silly. For for a four-hour time period and not have to think about everything else that's happening in the, in the world around me and just be able to immerse myself. And so for me, it's a great self-care. It's been so much fun to be able to uh, have this common thing that we can talk about in the community that is a source of celebration as opposed to a source of uh, a sore spot, if you would, which is how it has been since 2007.
1: So how do you feel about the Super Bowl chances?
2: Oh, my word. You know, we've got to get through Drew Brees this week and then it's going to be uh, probably Aaron Rodgers. Um, So it's if anyone can do it, Brady can. I will tell you, though, one of the things that we all know is that the Bucs have a terrible pass defense. So if uh, if as long as we can deal with that, I think we've got a chance if we can. It's going to be it's going to be a long Sunday for Clara. That's for sure.
1: Well, like the, the Luke Combs song says, six feet apart, you know, one of the first things he wants to do is watch a ball game from the stands. And so as my listeners know, I'm a huge sports fan. So I'm, I'm very envious of you and your husband, but I'm glad you're able to, uh, to watch this magical season for the Bucs. And I wish you and uh, the team good luck, even though I'm not really a Brady fan, but that's a different conversation for a different day.
2: We weren't a Brady fan until he came to Tampa. So okay. it's amazing how that happens.
1: I'd love to see the numbers of how many uh, Brady Bucks jerseys were sold for the holidays this year. Had to oh,
2: oh, my. Oh, my chart. husband's ridiculous about it. So, yes. And my son, <laughs> Corey. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Back to business.
2: Okay.
1: So I understand that you knew that you wanted to be a social worker from the first time you interned as a child protective investigator when you were 20 years old. What was it about the work that created such a strong pull for you?
2: Uh, So, you know, in in my background, I have, uh, I lost a parent to suicide as a teenager and and wound up in the child welfare system. And so when I went away to college, I thought that I was going to move in this child psychology kind of realm and fell into social work. And it really was incredible for me because social work is a place where you really can be an agent of change, either one individual at a time or at the macro level. And so being a child protective investigator was an incredible experience for me. Uh, It opened my eyes to how truly gray the world was and continues to be. And that even something like uh, child abuse and neglect is never black and white and that it's those shades of gray that you can really have an impact in being a partner in somebody's life. And that was how I was able to uh, kind of construct my social work career. So over the past you know, 30 years, I have always seen myself as a partner in somebody's journey. It's ultimately up to them what path they take. My job is to partner with them and provide some different skills and knowledge and abilities so that they have the opportunity to make different decisions. And that's what social work has always been for me it's this it's this chance for an opportunity it's it's a chance to provide hope to folks that may not feel like they have any
1: and from your experience in the school environment what are we getting right with school programs for at-risk kids and what should we think about doing differently
2: the fact that we recognize that we have children who are at risk for a variety of, of reasons, and the fact that we are taking a position from a trauma lens, uh, not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you, I think those are the things that we are that we're really doing to, to identify it. I think one of the places though that we need to continue to do differently is look at our, our children of color, look at our black and brown students, and what are we doing with them uh, that that is that's not helpful. Um, how are we making sure to celebrate all of the skills, knowledges, and knowledge and ability that they bring in? And how do we partner with them to provide other opportunities so that, again, at the end of the day, they have some choices um, in, to make in their lives? And I think engaging in those families has to be in a different way, particularly in a COVID environment. Recognizing, uh, you know, as, and again, I started in a school environment, recognizing that for many families, school is not the most important thing of the day. It is, you know, it, putting a really, roof over our head and food on the table and recognizing education has it has to be a partnership with families um, and being respectful that families all want the very best for their kids it may not look the way I see best uh, but I think we all have to recognize and look through a trauma lens because our families are dealing with more trauma than they've ever dealt with before and that's only going to be exacerbated as this uh, pandemic continues.
1: So when you left the school setting, you founded a nonprofit that provides in-home services for families called Success for Kids and Families. You were 10 years in with a nonprofit. In fact, you started your current position on the 10th anniversary of founding Success for Kids and Families. How does someone find the courage to leave a secure job to create a completely new venture? And how difficult was it to leave something that you'd created and leave it in the hands of other people?
2: So for the first question, I think it helps when you're young and you're stupid. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And so at the time, it was like, how hard could this be? Thank God. It's kind of like an infant. If, if, we had, if we didn't learn to walk until we were 80, we'd never step our first foot. Babies don't know any different. They walk, they fall, they stumble, but they learn. And I think that that was where I was with Success for Kids and Families. We had a great idea. We had a great concept of how to work with children and their families that were in placed in residential treatment. We figured out that we could bring these families back together. We could bring these children back to their homes and schools and communities and treat them here as opposed to sending them away, waving a magic wand thinking we're gonna fix them and put them right back in the same environment. So um, I am so glad I did that then because I would have been petrified to do that now. You know, we talk about the 10th anniversary of Success for Kids and Families, and I've been gone for five years. It is a thriving organization that's doing still amazing work in our community. I think it was the recognition that it was time for me to go, that the organization wasn't it wasn't Clara's. And that's what I think makes a nonprofit different maybe than a for-profit. When you think about a founder, that organization had amazing folks around it and had an amazing mission that transcended me. It had nothing to do necessarily with me. And so I recognized that I was getting, I needed something new. I needed something new for myself. um, And I had other goals that I needed to leave in order to be able to meet. And so coming to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay was truly a dream for me because of the mission. I had always, and throughout my entire career, dealt with individuals who had experienced a trauma or a crisis, they didn't get the help they needed. They developed their own coping mechanisms, and they came to me because those coping mechanisms weren't working anymore. And so, coming to Crisis Center of Tampa Bay, I was at the forefront of somebody's trauma and crisis. And if we do our work well, they would never need an organization like Success for Kids and Families. So, for me, it has been an amazing opportunity to be right there at the forefront of folks who are at the most in the most need.
1: During your career, you've been a child protective investigator, social worker in a teen parent program, full-time social worker in an elementary school, founder of a nonprofit that provides in-home services for families, and president and CEO of the Crisis Center. You've seen more heartbreaking situations than most people can ever imagine. Is there a common thread among people in crisis beyond the obvious one of being in a crisis, or does every crisis have its own nexus?
2: That's such an interesting question and, and so difficult to kind of encapsulate in a couple of words. Um, again, as I said before, I've always been kind of working in the, the deeper end of the system of care until I came to the crisis center. And, and I, what I, again, as I mentioned before, one of the issues is that, you know, folks had experienced something and they never really got the help and support that they needed. And human beings are resilient individuals. And we figure out a way to put one foot in front of the other. And we do that in a variety of ways. And sometimes Sometimes those are very healthy ways, maybe through athletics, maybe through faith, and sometimes it's unhealthy ways. And so I, portions of my, my career have been helping folks who have found unhealthy ways of dealing with their crisis, helping them transition those to more healthy ways. You know, and again, I, I say that crisis is different for everybody, but all of us experience crisis. I think that's the under the, underwhel- the um, overwhelming um, portion of this is that everyone experiences some sort of trauma or crisis and it's how we respond to it. The internal and external resources we have to respond that make the difference, and what is what turns into being success versus something that is a, a tragedy for you. So, I think that that is to answer the question. I think it's very individualized, but there are some common threads. And those folks that have the emotional, internal, and external resources tend to be able to be more resilient than those who don't have those internal or external supports. And so as a social worker, as somebody who runs a crisis organization, it's helping individuals find those resilient, the resiliency within themselves to be able to take that crisis and move forward. We say it here all the time, we can't undo what was done to you, but we can give you the tools and the techniques so that you can take that next step forward and not be stuck in the past.
1: Early in the program, you mentioned how everybody is being affected by COVID 19, the global pandemic. Last week, when you and I talked uh, before the show, we talked about the suicide of a young man who seemed to have everything going for him. Thomas Raskin would have turned 26 on January 30th. His father is a member of Congress. Thomas grew up with loving parents and siblings. He had every advantage that someone would want. He had already co founded a peer to peer tutoring program. He was attending Harvard Law School and was asked by a distinguished professor to become a teaching assistant. And yet he left behind a heartbreaking note on New Year's Eve saying in part, and I quote, please forgive me, my illness won today. An estimated 130 Americans die by suicide each day. Every one of those deaths is a tragedy. But what should Thomas Raskin's passing say to us?
2: Should say a few things to us. First of all, the, just the tragedy of losing somebody um, to this this form of of death. Uh, We talk about pandemics but suicide is truly a pandemic. Um, Across our globe people die by suicide in horrific numbers Um, and and suicide is 100% preventable. So I wanna say that first. I think that the other thing too, that's very telling and I think you you did a beautiful job of explaining it is that suicide doesn't care the color of your skin, doesn't care your age, it doesn't care your bank account. And we, none of us know, none of us realize what we're going through inside our own heads. We may look at somebody on the outside, we put our own perspective, our own slant on them, and we don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. And so I think that this is a, a an example of that. A young man that looks like he quote unquote has it all and yet is struggling with an illness that nobody can see. Um, that An illness that made him feel so hurt, so isolated that he felt his only option was to take his own life. And what I would say is that there are other options out there. Help is available. Help is real. And um, and again, you know, even though you may have, you may feel overwhelmed, help is available. And again, as we talked about before, recognizing you need help and then reaching out and asking for help are the hardest things, hardest parts of that journey. And I would encourage anybody in your um, audience today who is struggling with thoughts of suicide um, to make sure that they reach out and ask for help. The 1-800-273-TALK, which is the National Suicide Prevention Helpline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as is 211. Those are two very quick examples of ways that anybody at any time can get the help and support that they need during their own very personal uh, tragedy and crisis.
1: So you just mentioned how this disease is invisible and it's preventable. What signs or symptoms should we look for if we're concerned someone we know might be suicidal and what should we do if we see those signs?
2: First of all, recognize changes in behavior, particularly if they're vocalizing, I'm thinking about killing myself, giving away prized possessions, uh, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, uh, eating too much, not eating enough, uh, maybe utilizing substances more than usual. Um, Anything like that, uh, pulling away, any of those could be signs and symptoms. But what I tell everybody, and I really want to stress this with your audience, if you've got a niggling in your belly that something is wrong, listen to that niggling in your belly. It is probably absolutely right. And the most important question you can ask is, are you feeling suicidal? Do, are you thinking about taking your life? That's not planting a seed. That is giving license for somebody who is so struggling to be able to actually answer and say, yes, I am. And then together you all can find that path to help and support. Uh, But saying those words are very, very important. And again, listening with compassion, don't try to invalidate their feelings. Somebody may on the outside look like they have every reason to live. Don't invalidate what they're saying. Listen to them, support the conversation and then help them reach out for help so that they can see that you are somebody that believes in them, that's willing to listen and wants to help.
1: We mentioned Thomas Raskin's dad is a member of Congress. When we talked last week about the stresses created by the 2020s political environment and different attitudes about President Trump, obviously it was before the inexcusable siege on the US Capitol. How is the political climate affecting people who contacted the crisis center?
2: I would tell you that the week of the election, um, we fielded over 184 suicide calls. We usually, in a week, we usually average about 100. So it is adding stress to an already incredibly stressful time. And I think traditionally our nation has unified during a time of crisis. So if we think about the pandemic, just, just COVID, Normally that would be a rallying cry for all of us to come together, think about 9-11, those kinds of things. Because of all of the other things happening, though, across our nation, we have not seen that united front, that united peace. And so it has left many individuals, I think, feeling like they are on an island, isolated and struggling alone. So we've got to get our nation to a place of united, of unity, remembering that we're all Americans, that this is one democracy, and that we all have to work together to keep this democracy uh, running.
1: You know, you use the word united there several times. You know, we are the United States of America in name, at least right now. What can we do to diffuse some of this tension between those who have ardently supported President Trump and those who just quite simply can't stomach him?
2: I think at, I think at the at the personal level I think we have to take ownership and responsibility and know where our comfort level is and where and where we want to be understanding that if you have extreme beliefs on whatever side you're not going to change somebody else who has different extreme beliefs. So kind of recognizing it and putting boundaries up front. So as you're um, going to your Super Bowl, you know, Zoom get together, maybe making some boundaries and some rules around, we're not gonna talk about politics today. Um, there's a reason why in most conversations in polite company, you don't talk about religion and you don't talk, talk about politics because it can be so heated. Right now in this space, it is, it's is—it's so extreme. So kind of putting some boundaries around it. And if somebody is not respecting your boundaries, let them know, okay, I need to be done with this conversation because when, some, when, when a conversation around politics isn't enlightening you, it's not educating you, it's making you more anxious, it's making you angry, it's making you fearful, that's a time for you to take responsibility and to step away. Let the individual know right now, I need to be done with this conversation. We have a choice, we can switch topics or I can leave. Those are, those are things that I'm in control of and then exercising those choices. I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, we think about our social media platforms, recognize how you're engaging in that social media. And if you do have family members and friends, we all do, that have different views from you, maybe making a truce of, you know what, let's talk about your animals and your enjoyment of knitting, and let's leave the politics off the table for right now. I think those are some things that we can do. And you know, and again, just on a just from Clara's perspective, I think it would also be helpful if our public news uh, refrained from as much editorializing as what we're seeing and just kind of stuck with some more facts. And also giving us some news stories of hope. Everybody does it, but it's usually at the very tail end. We all get it. News, the Is more explosive it can be, the better the ratings are. We get all of that. But all of that is also fueling this, this discussion. And I think at the end of the day, again, to go back to individual responsibility, if your news, if your social media is agitating you rather than educating you, it is time to turn it off. It's time to take a step back and to do something else. And maybe you schedule some time in your day when you're going to, maybe at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Those are my two times that I'm going to get my news media, but I'm going to shut it off the rest of the day because it's not, help, it's not healthy for me. It is absolutely okay to put those boundaries around your news consumption.
1: You know, you just mentioned a very novel idea, news giving us facts versus editorial. Who, who would ever think of something like that?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm even surprised. Even some of our radio um, stations that we usually can trust for news, I find have moved more into that into that space. So I think we all need that gut check of let's report the facts and let's leave the editorial and opinion outside because there is plenty of that to go around.
1: So that being said, how uh, excuse me, how optimistic are you that we can eventually get back to some sort of a civil dialogue about politics? or have things just been irreparably changed for the past three or four years?
2: You know, I, I am hopeful that um, our kids, our seniors in high school are going to look back on all of this and recognize where we made our mistakes as a, as a society and that the next generation is going to be much more thoughtful and much more engaged in this political dialogue Rather than waiting to get involved until things are at their extreme, you know, I, I think that we've gotten to that place where we're all now so focused at the extremes, we think this is normal. I think when we get ourselves back to some sort of equilibrium, when the world gets back to some sort of equilibrium, and our children have that opportunity to really participate as full members in this democracy, that we are going to get back to that good natural discourse, that that the discussions that these kids are having in high school, in college, will really be able to take them into their adulthood, and recognizing that there's room for every opinion at the table, we just have to make sure that we are, are being Um, respectful. And that respect has left us right now. And so that's my hope in the future is that we'll be able to have thoughtful, respectful dialogue that is there to educate as opposed to agitate. All
1: right, Claire, we've got about one minute left here. Next steps forward is about personal empowerment and well-being. Putting COVID aside, what are some things that people can do in 2021 to feel more empowered, more control of their lives, and quite frankly, and simply to feel better about themselves?
2: Make little bitty goals that you can achieve. We don't have to, I don't have to say, Clara doesn't have to say, I'm gonna lose 30 pounds in three months. Let's make little bitty goals of maybe not eating the full bag of chocolate chips every night before I go to bed. So little bite-sized goals that will that I can achieve that are gonna make me feel bigger. Whatever that is, whatever you're interested in, start with that vision and then break those down into small little bitty pieces. Again, we have no idea what the world's gonna look like. I think we have to give our, all of ourselves this pass of we're gonna do, the best thing we can do is make sure we make it to the other side of this and making sure we bring our friends and loved ones with us, um, making sure we're still remembering to call people, check in on people, and, um, and again, being kind to ourselves, forgiving of ourselves, and remembering that self-care uh, so that we can take care of ourselves. If we love to bake, make some more banana bread. It's great. Uh, whatever we need to do, again, we need to get to on the other side of this um, and then be able to you know be ready to go as a country moving forward.
1: Claire Reynolds, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: And thank you for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.